Isaiah chapter 20. And, uh, you know, if you haven't figured this out, the Bible, the Bible has some humor in it. And the Bible has some unusual things that, that, that God gives to us that makes us think and uh, just kind of perks up our, our, our imaginations a little bit and wondering what's going on and makes us study his word. And we're just thankful for that. And that's one of the passages we're going to be reading today. So at home, if you would, and here in the church, why don't you stand with me? And we're going to read Isaiah chapter 20. I'm going to read the first three verses just to save time today. First three verses, Isaiah chapter 20. And you read aloud at home where you're at. Children read aloud with your parents. Parents read aloud for your children. Husbands lead the way. Parents, those, those heads of households, you lead the way this, eve, this morning. In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time, spake the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Isaiah? And the Bible tells us later on, that he walked, as the Bible describes, naked and barefoot. Before I go on, he wasn't bare naked, just so you know that. He was wearing his inner garment, and I'll explain that in a minute. But can you imagine walking barefoot for three years around Jerusalem? And literally, I spoke about this Wednesday night, literally being a spectacle, something to behold. I want to preach a message this morning entitled, The Barefoot Prophet. The Barefoot Prophet. There's a message here, there's encouragement here, but there's a lesson here. I want you to grasp and let the Lord speak to your heart. Now, Father, thank you this morning again. Bless your word abundantly in our heart. We're so filled with thanksgiving. Our cup is overflowing in the Lord. And would you help somebody today whose cup is empty or depleted or their soul is depleted? And Lord, today, make them to lie down in the green pastures and help them to drink from the still waters. Because you promised when that happens, he restoreth my soul. And our soul needs to be restored from depletion and discouragement and defilement and discouragement of all kinds. And so today, bless the word. Thank you for what you've given us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah is a major prophetical book. Isaiah chapter 14 to, I don't know, about chapter 22 or so, contains what is called Isaiah's prophecy concerning the nations. Now, in my prayer, as we go through Isaiah, it gives you enough of foundation, and it gives you enough of some background, so when you read through the prophets, whether the other major prophets or the minor prophets, that you can see how it all dovetails together. And as you read about it, you notice several things. We see that it's, it's coming prophecy in two phases. It's coming prophecy, perhaps, and things to come within years after it was given, as in this case. And in some cases, it's also speaking about prophecy in the future, more years to come. And when it talks about prophecy in the years to come, more often than not, the Old Testament prophets are talking about the Great Tribulation period and the Second Coming of Christ, or the 1,000-year reign of Christ that starts when Jesus returns to earth. Now, that's some wonderful things. Pastor A.J. led us in singing this morning, Jesus is coming again. I really believe everything happening in our world right now is getting us ready for Jesus coming again. I have been praying for weeks on end. Jesus, come today. Maranatha, please, Lord Jesus, come. I want my heart ready. I'm trying to look for his appearing, and love is appearing. And I want to lead our congregation to look for his appearing, and love is appearing. I don't want us to be a congregation that's unprepared when Jesus comes again. I don't want us to be caught unawares. I want us to be aware of the fact that he could come at any time. That's one of the great doctrines of Scripture. We believe in the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imminent meaning it could be at any moment, at any time. He could come like a thief in the night. He could come at any moment. He's going to come unannounced. And when he comes, we better be ready. And so this morning, as we look at that, that kind of gives you a little bit of understanding and prophecy what he's talking about here. And as we look at some of these things, it'll help us understand world history. By the way, let me just say this. 
the Bible, the Bible, world history validates the Bible. World history proves the veracity of the Bible. World history points to the truthfulness of the Bible and the infallibility of the Bible. In fact, if you want to find accuracy about world history, you just need to study and read through the Bible. The book of Daniel is another major historical book, another book of prophecies that historically helps us in understanding and appreciating the fact that the Bible is in its entirety the Word of God. So in our passage this morning, we see the prophecy of the nations Last week, we spent all of last Sunday looking at the nation of Egypt. Now, we're looking at Egypt again, but chronologically, it's at a different phase. It's at a phase when Egypt and another country just south of Egypt, Ethiopia, when they would be conquered during, within a few years of this time. Sargon is the king of Assyria. Assyria is the great world power at that time. Just so you understand who Sargon is, you look him up, Sargon was a great military hero. Anything you read in secular literature about Sargon tells us that Sargon was a great military leader. He conquered many nations. The eyes of the world in that area of the world were looking at Sargon. Sargon was the father of Sennacherib. We read about Sennacherib later on as he led his, his assault against Jerusalem and King Hezekiah. And not long after this, Sargon is off the scene and Sennacherib is king. So Sargon is king. He has a general by the name of Tartan who goes into Ashdod. Ashdod is a city, one of the major cities of the Philistines. The Philistines were a coastal people. The Philistines were the descendants of the Canaanites. They were, they, were, they, were, they were descendants that were giants. You read about Goliath the giant. Goliath contained his DNA and his genes from the Canaanites. You read about all that, about that back there in the Old Testament there in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers there. And so the Philistines were coastal people. And Ashdod itself, which was one of the major cities, was, was in a fight for its life because Tartan came down to fight with it. In the midst of all this, we read about this, 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 this time when that attack happened in verse 1. It's, it tells us there that Isaiah got a command from God. Now the title of the message is The Barefoot Prophet. Now, some people like to walk barefoot. I, I think there's some people in our church that like to walk barefoot. And that, God bless your heart, that's good. Uh, and, you know, some people like to walk barefoot. I think a majority of people, if they go to a beach setting, uh, and they, they probably like to take off their shoes or their flip-flops, and they like to walk on the sand, and, that, that, and they enjoy that. And some people can walk on grass and so forth. Some of you are probably have very, very hardened feet, and you're good at that type of thing, and that's fine. But we're reading about a barefoot prophet. Now, the Bible says some things about people that went barefoot. Barefoot. Read about in 2 Samuel 15 about David at a time he had to go barefoot. He was running from the revolt that his son Absalom did against the kingdom, and David walked barefoot. We read about later on, we read about another time where Moses was told by God as he was on holy ground to take his shoes off, and he was to stand barefoot on that ground. We read later on, many years after that, about 40 to 50 years after that, that Joshua, who was his successor, was at was at by at the had just crossed the Jordan River and he was at a place called Gilgal and he saw the captain of the Lord's host which was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and he said art thou the who art thou are thou for us or against us and God he said I'm the captain of the Lord's host he says the ground you're on is holy he says take off thy shoe and Joshua himself experienced being barefoot before the presence of God there the prodigal son when he returned home when he left home he had shoes on but when he came home he came home barefoot the word barefoot is mentioned three times in chapter 20 here. We find in verse 2, we find in verse 3, we find in verse 4. God wants us to zone in on the word barefoot and understand what it means. The priests, when they did service to God before they entered to the tabernacle, you read this over in Exodus, they were to take off their sandals and they walked into the tabernacle barefoot. Now, when you look up the word barefoot in reference to David and Isaiah here, and perhaps the culture as a whole, to walk barefoot as Isaiah did and as David did. To walk barefoot like this represented an individual who was grieving, who had trouble, who was distressed. Kings, prophets, and priests wore shoes. If any of them in their, in, their, in, their, in their capacity removed their shoes and indicated there was some kind of distress, it indicated something was going on. And when the prophet of God removed his shoes and he walked barefoot, symbolically it was telling God's people 
Something's going on. Something's going on. There's something in his heart. There's something God gave to him. And we better pay attention to that. Now, as we look at this passage this morning, we want to know, why did God tell him to do that? Why did God tell him to remove his sackcloth, his outer garment, his tunic, and remove his shoes? We want to know, what does the word naked mean? We want to know, what does this have to do? For, are there any practical lessons that we find from this? And there are. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, if you have your notes out, I want you to notice, first of all, we see the command to the prophet. Now, a command seems so basic, but a command is an order to be carried out and obeyed. Parents, I hope that you go home today or at home this morning after the service and quiz your kids on what does a command mean. Because I think we've lost the essence, even as God's people, of what a command means. A command is an edict and an order to be obeyed. A command from God is the highest order to be carried out. I want you to remember that. A command from God is the highest order to be carried out. As we look at this command that God gave, I want you to notice the period. The Bible says in chapter 20, verse 1, it was in the year the Tartan came and attacked Ashdod when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him. The time period that God gave this, this, this to, uh, to Isaiah was the year that there was an attack. Now, we know this was real because secular history tells us that the year that King Sargon conquered the Philistine city of Ashdod was 711 B.C. You might want to put that in your notes next time you read your Bible. 711 B.C. The Bible tells us, based on this narrative here, that the... the, the, the the, the process took about three years that Sargon and Tartan were battling against Ashdod for about three years. And I want you to understand, Ashdod and Gaza and all those other cities of the Philistines, they were not pushover cities. This was not going to be a likely walk in the park. But I want to plug a thought in your mind there. It took three years because Ashdod was fortified and Ashdod, the Philistines, were a fighting people, but also the fact that that Assyria, as they looked at, they knew very well all of the landscape and the enemies and their efforts. They knew their enemy well. They studied it. And they knew that Egypt was a strong world power. And they knew that Ethiopia was in the world power. And Ashdod knew that as well as, as, well as Judah, because Judah is watching all this. And Judah being the nation, the nation there the, the, where Jerusalem was capital. And so you have to bear in mind, if you, if you remember this today, that Judah is watching what's going on here. And Ashdod is watching what's going on here. Because Ashdod is thinking... Well, you know, as our backup, our plan B, and you want to remember that, our plan B is that we're going to go to Egypt and we're going to go to Ethiopia for help. So, you know, if, if something falls down, we know that we've got Ethiopia and we've got Egypt to help us there. So the time frame, if you would, the time period was at the time when Ashdod was attacked. Judah's watching, Egypt's watching, Ethiopia's watching, and Ashdod is thinking, if we can't hold out our defenses, our plan B is we'll appeal to Egypt and Ethiopia. But we see the particulars in this. The Bible says in verse 2, at the same time, now at the same time, now if you have to understand here, the invisible hand of God is orchestrating all this. The invisible hand of God is working through this secular leader by the name of Sargon to send his general there to attack the nation, the city of Ashdod there. And so at the same time, as this is going, this is happening, it's unfolding, God comes to the prophet Isaiah. He may have come to him during a Bible reading time. He may have come to him at a time when he was having his devotions. He may have come to a time, maybe at the middle of the day, when he's having a time of prayer. I think about Peter over there in, in Acts chapter 10, at the time of prayer in the middle of the day, he was praying. The angel of the Lord came to him and spoke to him. He came to him, the Bible says, at the same time, the Lord came, uh, came to, I spake the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos. He gave Isaiah a message and he told him, go loose the sackcloth from off thy loins and put off thy shoes from off thy foot. Now you and I read that and we, and we look at that and we just keep on reading, but I want you to pause for a minute. Doesn't that sound like a very strange command? I mean, how many of you, in your devotions, God told you, to, told you to take off your sackcloth and take off your shoes, amen, and walk barefoot? The men and the ladies, especially the prophets of God, had two layers of clothing. Then an outer garment, which we sometimes call their tunic, and they had their inner garment. 
many times which would either be wool or linen. For the prophet of God, it would be linen. And another garment, which as we read our Bible, was a long flowing garment from the neck, let's say the collarbone or so, down to his ankles, was modest apparel. People dressed modestly. But it was considered immodest, or may I say embarrassing, for anybody to walk around, especially a man, in just his inner garment. It was even more strange for a man to walk around without his sandals on. Because I have to, you have to remember, back in those days, they didn't have the sanitation that we have today. They didn't have street sweepers. Garbage and junk would be all over the streets. I mean, you just, your wildest imagination. You know, we talk about now in a COVID-19 world, when you come in your house, take off your shoes and leave them outside. Amen, you know? In many cultures of the world, before you can enter somebody's house, they want you to take your shoes off outside. It's a custom. It's a good custom. It's a clean custom. They don't want you tracking anything in their home. It's just, and it shows respect for those people. But God told Isaiah, I want you to take off your outer garment and thy shoe from off thy feet. Now, a thought I want to give you this morning as we think about the particulars God would never ask Isaiah to do something that would be shameful to a degree where we'd lose his testimony or something that was so out of the ordinary that it would defile the conscience, if you know what I'm saying. So when you read the word naked here pertaining to Isaiah, Isaiah was not bare naked. It just means there that he's walking around in his inner garments. I want to settle that right up front, and we're gonna, that's all I'm going to say. But God gave him a command. And in this command, it was a mandate to him. Now, when God gives us a command, we have to understand something this morning. Commands were meant to be fulfilled, to be followed through with. He gave him a command. And you notice here, while seeing the, the, the prophet walking around Jerusalem, it indicated to everyone two things. Number one, it indicated, number one, he was under a mandate. You and I are under mandates. We're to follow God's word. We're to obey God's word. That's what we're saying today when we walk with the Lord in light of the word. Trust and obey. Listen, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Did you know that our response to God's commands tells other people about the devotion and the depth of our relationship to him? Did you ever think about that? I mean, our obedience to his word. Let me tell you something. Listen to me today. If you're someone always having to have counsel, and someone always struggling with God's word, I'm going to boil it down to one thing. It all boils down to your response to God's word. Either you trust God's word or you do not trust God's word. And our response to a command of God indicates to people our devotion and our and our depth of our relationship to the Lord. But it spoke to them something else. It also told people there's a message. So here's this prophet of God, if you can imagine this. I'm going out doing his duties, doing his thing, preaching. He's literally preaching in his inner garment and with no shoes on. Now, probably in some parts of the world, that's probably okay. But in Jerusalem, that was out of the ordinary. That was unusual. You can imagine all of his contemporaries of that day, Hosea and people like that, wondering, what did God tell him? What's going on? Here, you know, all of these thoughts are going on. But I want to give you a thought here. It also told everyone that this man could be trusted with God's message. He could be trusted with the mysteries of God. He could be trusted as a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ there. I'm saying today, we see this command that God gave to his man. It was a command at the time that Ashdod was attacked and Ashdod was, well, was going to rely on their plan B that Egypt and Ethiopia were there to bail them out. We see a second thing this morning very quickly. We see the command, but we also see the compliance. Would you notice verse two again? Now, how did he respond? The Bible says, and he did so. You know, what to God, all of us could be that, could have that kind of response. 
You notice this man, Isaiah, this prophet, was obedient to God. He was completely obedient to God. We see the performance in his obedience, the performance in his compliance. He did so. He did exactly what God told him to do. He did it exactly to the T and to the I. He didn't try to amend it. He didn't try to appeal it. He didn't say, well, God, I'm a prophet of God, and I've carried your message, and you've already let me in the past to announce to people about the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior. Lord, lay Later on, you're going to let me write down Isaiah 53. Lord, you've let me talk about, about uh, that, that in Isaiah 9, 6. Lord, you've given me all these, these pro- wonderful prophecies. Why, why can't we change this? He didn't debate with God. He didn't argue with God. He didn't try to change the rules. He didn't try to rewrite it his way. You know, a lot of times we read something, God's word, we're told to do something, and then something happens, and then all of a sudden our world is, is altered, and our thinking is altered. And so we want to go to God's word and change it, and we want to amend it. We want God God's word to fit us instead of us fitting God's word. We want to tailor design God's word to our desires and what we want to do instead of us realizing God wants to mold and conform us to his word. You know, there's a little bit of rebellion in every one of us, amen? There's a little bit of defiance in every one of us. There's a, there's a little bit of self-will in every one of us. There's a little bit of independence. And let me tell you something this morning. The more successful you are, the more money you have, the more you have the blessings of God, the tendency is that your confidence level is much higher than somebody who doesn't have those same things. And because of that, there's a tendency that you're going to resist. There's a tendency you're going to rebel. There's a tendency you're going to get away from it. There's a tendency you want to negotiate. There's a tendency you want to be, or you want to give rebuttals and all those type of things. And yet, but you notice this man here, as educated as he was and as trusted as he was, he didn't argue with God. Our nature is we want to argue with God. We want to debate with God. We want to negotiate with God, but he did what he was told to do. The Bible says, and he did so. The Bible says he walked naked. And barefoot. Do you obey God? Do you obey God exactly as he dots the I's and crosses the T's? Would God say you're obedient? We see the performance in his compliance. Notice the promptness in his compliance. He did it immediately. He did it immediately. Whenever Jesus told somebody to do something quickly, it's because he knew there was some resistance. Even David knew years before this, and he said the king's business requireth haste. He did it quickly. When God gives us a command, we need to do it quickly. When God says obey, we need to say, I'm here. What do I need to do? Here am I, Lord. Send me. Here am I, Lord. I'll do it. I think of Abraham this morning. I think of Abraham. In Genesis 18, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate appearance, with two angels, came to the tent of Abraham to visit him. None about you. That's a holy visit from God. And he was standing there at midday. He wasn't taking a siesta like the typical Hebrew did. He knew it was God coming. And immediately as Jesus came and those two angels came, you know what it says about, it says over and over again in Genesis 18, Abraham moved hastily. Abraham moved quickly. He went quickly and he brought some water to them. He moved quickly to wash your feet. He moved quickly to prepare some food. He ran inside of his tent and he asked Sarah, he said, Sarah, quickly, make haste. He said, knead the dough, bring some bread. We need to bring something to cheer them. He went out quickly and he took the best fatty calf that he had out there. And he told one of his young men, I want you to prepare it quickly. He moved quickly. He moved hastily. You know what's our problem? We move too slow. We move according to our speed instead of God's speed. But thank God we have an example here of a prophet of God who did exactly what God told him to do. And when he did it, he did it quickly. Let me tell you what, you'll have joy and you'll have peace and you'll have, you'll have just an overflow in your cup if you just obey God and do what you're supposed to do and you do it quickly. There was promptness. Would you think with me for a minute, (coughs) what would happen in your family if everybody in the family obeyed God quickly? Would you think with me for a minute, what would happen to 
throughout our church, if all of us obeyed God quickly, would you think with me for just a minute, what would happen to our city and our county if everyone at Heritage Baptist Church obeyed God promptly? Can you imagine what would happen around the world for the sake of missions if every Christian obeyed God promptly? Oh man, I look at, I look at him, I see the performance is compliance, I see the promptness is compliance, but I see the personal in his compliance. You know, sadly to say for all of us, some Christians have difficulty obeying God because what God asks them to, tells them to do, it's not convenient. Some Christians have difficulty obeying God because what God asks them to do, they're not comfortable with it. Some people have difficulty obeying God because what God asks them to do is asking them to be humble, to condescend. It's not natural for a natural man to be humble. It's not natural for a natural man to be comfortable. It's not natural for a natural man to feel convenient. But you know something here? I'm just convinced of one thing. God never asks you and me to do something that would hurt us. And God never asks us to do something that he's trying to shame us, even though we might feel that. If you feel shamed because of something God asked you to do, that's your feeling. That wasn't God's feeling. That's not of the Spirit of God. Make sure you know that. And I see the personal here that as Isaiah was walking around in his inner garment and barefoot, I mean, probably initially, I, I'm just putting myself in his place. He's probably thinking, man, this is hard. God, I'm going to be walking in my inner garment. And God didn't tell him how long. Hey, part of, the, part of the thing God tells us, God never tells you how long the sequence will be. He just wants to see how long you're going to trust him. And he goes out there and he's walking barefoot. And maybe in the beginning, and maybe every day, there was some shame and some embarrassment, but I, I look at it this way. God did it for three years because there were some things he was trying to teach Isaiah before God was going to work through the nations. And there are some things God wanted to do in Isaiah's family before he had to deal with his, everybody else. I mean, can you imagine his sons looking at him? We read about his sons and his wife looking at him and said, Dad, what's going on? Dad, how come you're in your inner garment? Hey, Dad, and I can see his wife saying, honey, don't you think you put your outer garment? And a wife is, you know, a wife is, you know, a good, good, a good thing, and, 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 she's, and she's protective of you. And she's saying, honey, you know, your, your ministry is going to be effective if you go and do this thing. And you can imagine his peers and his friends are thinking, well, we could see this happening for one day and for one week and one month. But after one month, you, you see some of his friends becoming kind of, they're, they're different ranges of emotions. Some of them are becoming very cynical. They say, well, he must have did something wrong. Or they're thinking maybe, maybe he must be, he must be, maybe he's lost it. Or maybe he's lowered his standards. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe he's trying to, he's trying to inject himself into something that is of God. No, Isaiah was a man personally who did exactly what God told him to do. He was comfortable with what God told him to do. He didn't worry about the inconvenience with what God told him to do. It was completely convenient to him. He had conviction about what God wanted to do. He humbled himself to what God wanted to do. Why? Because he realized God had something bigger in mind than Isaiah in this whole matter there. Now I have to want to ask you some questions. Would you humble yourself to do something uncomfortable? Would you humble yourself before God to do something that's not convenient to you? It's inconvenient for some people to come to evening service. It's inconvenient for some people to come to prayer meeting. It's inconvenient for some people to say I'm wrong. It's inconvenient and uncomfortable for some people to say I've sinned. It's inconvenient and uncomfortable for some people to say I'm out of my place. And we're out of our place. You know when you're out of your place because the fruit of the Spirit is Listen, the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's where the fruit of the Spirit is. What's the hardest thing God has ever asked you to do? 
What if God came to you in your devotions today or tomorrow and asked you to do something difficult, like give a track at the drive at the drive-through? Or to get somebody in your heart that maybe you've given up on and invite them through social media to come to a live stream service. What's the hardest thing God has asked you to do? Would you witness for him? Would you give up friendships that are not helpful to your testimony? Friendships, perhaps, that are more like a dead weight pulling you down and drowning you instead of a buoy that lifts you up? Would you obey God and be faithful to every service? When we reopen our church, are you just going to have that one-time ethereal moment and one day, Sunday high, and say, well, that was great. Good to see the old chairs and the old building. And then you, then you start going like this. Or are you going to go like this? Is it hard for you to do all things without murmuring and disputing? Is it a hard thing for you to not put your candle under a, under a bed, but let your light so shine that men may behold that you're the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a Sinful and perverted world? Is it uncomfortable for you men to be comfortable to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, when we bring it down to the personal, the degree of your Christian faith boils down to what you're willing to be obedient to. We see the command, we see the compliance very quickly, which you notice the captivity. At the right time, we get to verses 3 to 6. And everyone watching Isaiah walking around the town of Jerusalem, they know there's a message behind what God's doing. They know there's a message. Let me tell you this morning, in this COVID-19 world we have, we're in. This pandemic has affected every nation of the world. This pandemic has affected the airlines industry, businesses, outsourcing, shipping. It's raised prices. There's inflation everywhere. Finances affected. Jobs are affected. I mean, it's a lot of things that are affected. And if we're not very careful, we fall into the trap like the rest of the masses out there, and just following along as sheep and thinking this is just the way it's supposed to be. God's hand is what's going on here. We have, we're, we're living in the midst of time. Prophecy is unfolding right now. We're seeing lots of different things happening right now that are indicating to us the Lord could be coming soon. And he's getting us ready for something. He's getting us ready for something big. He's getting ready for something that could be very judgmental upon this world. And I'm going to tell you today, as we look at the situation, here's Isaiah walking around barefoot and in his inner garment. And all of a sudden now God gives him verse, verse 3 here, verse 4. God explains the, the message behind this. And so notice, first of all, we see the meaning behind this, the meaning in this captivity. He says, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Ethiopian prisoners and the Ethiopians captive, young and old, and uh, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt, and they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, the expectation of Egypt, their glory. Now, there's, there's three different groups of people we see that are mentioned here. First of all, here's Isaiah, and, and that, he's not one of those groups I'm talking about, but Isaiah's walking around here in his inner garment and barefoot, and people have seen this. And so God announces, here's what the meaning is behind this. He says, listen, Egypt and Ethiopia, which are great world powers, they have great military strength. He says, listen, they're not greater than Assyria. Assyria, what God allowed Assyria to rise up as a great world power of that time. And if you do your study about Assyria, Assyria invented tortures and cruelties of things of nature that were very barbaric, that were carried over to the Romans by the Babylonians and Romans, they inherited those things. 
And we see here that, that uh, the Assyria was, had raised himself up and they were taking city after city and all the eyes of the world were watching what Assyria was doing. And at this moment in time in chapter 20, the eyes of the world are looking at General Tartan, who is commissioned by, by King Sargon, as they're attacking the city of Ashdod and they're making their way and they're making victory on this place. And we know later on that we said in verse 1 that he went against Ashdod and took it. But Ashdod's thinking, you know what? We've got our plan B is we can get Egypt and Ethiopia behind us. But God says, let me tell you the meaning behind my prophet and my servant of God walking there in his inner garment and walking barefoot. Let me tell you the meaning. The meaning is the fall of Egypt and the fall of Ethiopia is going to happen. And when they fall, they're going to fall. All of their glory will fall and there will be shame and all of their expectation will fall and their military strength will fail and their finances will fail and their country will fail. What's he saying behind it? He says, you know the king of Assyria is going to come in. Here's how great his conquest will be of those two nations. He's going to come into there and he's going to lead them captive. He's going to take these mighty Egyptians and he's going to take these mighty Ethiopians. He's going to take these men and these warriors of war and these soldiers of war and these, these men who are experts in the sword and the spear and the chariots and horses and he's going to humble them and he's going to lead them captive and he's going to strip them bare naked and they're going to walk through the streets bare naked before all the people. He says, just as my prophets walked around, I want you to understand something. I did not shame my prophet like I'm going to shame Egypt and, and, and Ethiopia but I want you to understand something. Ashdod and Judah and the nation of the world are saying we can trust in Egypt and we can trust in Ethiopia. And God was saying here, let me tell you something. They're going to fall. That is not the method God has chosen. They're going to fall. They're going to fail. And they're going to walk around and you're going to see them humiliated in shame before your very eyes. Notice the misery. Now we read that, we say, okay, and we yawn. I want you to understand how miserable this situation is. Verse 4 says there would be captivity. Verse 4 tells us there would be shame. Verse 5 tells us there will be fear. Verse 5 tells us their glory will fail. I mean, if Ethiopia and Egypt are confederate, even their combined strength, and even if Judah joined them, which Judah probably thought about, it could now do what Assyria would do to them. These two nations and Ashdod were outnumbered, outwitted, outmatched. Complete misery. Complete misery. And as this is going on, Ashdod is in the throes of being defeated. And Judah's watching on because they have the same mind as Ashdod and the other nations of that area. We can trust in Egypt, and we can trust in Ethiopia, and we can trust in the world to help us there. But I want you to notice the message. As this is being unfolded, and God is giving the message of the failure of Egypt and Ethiopia, in verse 5 and 6, the attention changes from Ethiopian Egypt back to Ashdod, which we began with. The Bible says, and they, they is talking about Ashdod. They is talking about Ashdod, it's not about Egypt and Ethiopia. All of a sudden, Ashdod's realizing as the main city being under attack, hey, our plan B was we were going to depend on Egypt and Ethiopia to help us, and God just said, you know what, your plan B just failed. I just defeated your plan B. I threw your plan B out the window. He said, there is no plan B. I've defeated that. You thought there's a way out. There is no way out. The only way out is to me. And the Bible says, and they, that is Ashdod, they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia. So in other words, they're going to look, and even they will blush, and even they will be embarrassed, as seeing Ethiopians walking bare naked through the streets in shackles because they were captive to, to, to Assyria. And then it says, their expectation of Ethiopia they're ashamed of Egypt, their expectation. I mean, they were expecting Egypt to come and help them out, and their expectation failed. You know how it is. You get, your, you get all worked up, 
and you get all excited that something's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. The Bible says, heart defer, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. That's what's happening here. Their hope had failed. Their hope was falling. And the Bible says, and their expectation, they'll be ashamed of Egypt, the Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory. I mean, they were looking forward that they would glory in the fact that Egypt would bail them out, and Ethiopia would fail them out. And so we get over here to verse 6, and the Bible says, in that day, behold, such is our expectation, whether we flee for help, be delivered from the king of Assyria. They said, the day has come where we thought we could flee to them, and now we're in trouble because of the king of Assyria. You know what the message is? Who are you putting your trust in? What are you putting your trust in? When we trust in anything and anyone other than God, we're going to find out that's shaky ground. Who are you trusting in to get you to heaven? What are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? Who are you trusting in for your spiritual problems? Who are you trusting to keep your marriage together? You know, one of the things that makes me sick about this whole COVID-19, one of many things that makes me sick about this COVID-19 dilemma we're in, is the number of people that are anxious, agitated, and disturbed, angry with their husband, angry with their wife, angry with their children, even among God's people. At a time, for a lot of you, your employer doesn't even know what to tell you to do because you're working from home. You can't manage your time well enough. You're thinking, what is God trying to teach me through all this? Who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in for your anxieties and your worries? Your sleeplessness? Who are you trusting for your success in your job and your career? Who are you trusting in? You see, the Ashdod was a place they thought, we have a plan B. But you know what God is saying here? I just destroyed your plan B. And you know, sometimes we have to realize that if we go on in life and go on in life and keep doing what we're doing, we're trusting in this, trusting in that, there comes a point in time, God's going to just have to shatter our plan B and help us to realize we've got to have faith and faith in God alone. And so we go to Psalms 118. Would you turn there, please? Psalms 118. And the psalmist said in verse 5, I called upon the Lord in distress. And praise God, the Lord answered me. And he set me in a large place. Don't say God doesn't hear you. God hears you. He may not have answered you right away, but he hears you. And he answers you and he sets you in a large place. You say, well, God didn't answer the way I wanted. That doesn't matter. God put you in a large place. There's an answer there, but it's not our plan B. And he said in verse 6, the Lord is on my side. Aren't you glad about that this morning? Amen. Aren't you glad God is on your side? Listen, you better be glad God is on your side because if God is not on your side, you're going to be in big trouble. He said, the Lord's on my side. I will not fear. Now, if you read the beginning of this psalm, he was, he was, he was pretty, pretty shaken. What can man do unto me? And some of us hanging by the threads and wondering what to do next. I remind you in verse 5, he said, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Hey, it's time for God's people to step out by faith and do something great for God. What can man do unto you? Honestly, the Lord is on your side. If God's on your side, what are you worrying about? And he says, the Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. He says, you know what? God will take care of my enemies. God will vindicate me. Then verses 8 and 9, he says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Amen to that. It's better to trust in the Lord to put your confidence in princes. 
Hey, it's pretty easy. It's better to trust in the Lord. That's what he's saying in Isaiah chapter 20, amen? It's better to trust in God. Greatest decision you can make today is put your trust in God. All of your trust. But where there's trust and there's faith, there must be obedience alongside of that. That's why God was using the prophet Isaiah as a symbol, as a message of obedience, as a message of faith, a message of trusting God and believing God. You know what? I believe all this. Some, some, some people think, write and say that Isaiah probably had a forlorn look on his face and he probably was weeping all the time. I, maybe in the beginning, he, I, I'll give some credit that he may have done in the beginning, but I don't believe for three years he did that. I think he came to the place and realizations God was speaking in his heart. You know what? It's a joy to serve Jesus, even if it's humbling, even if it's embarrassing, even if it's beneath my dignity, even though I'm the quote-unquote prophet of God. He said, God told me to walk barefoot and in my inner garden. I want to remind you, he was the only one in all of Jerusalem God told to do that. Some of us need to come off our high hobby horses and get down on our knees and be humble before God. And he walked around, it was a message of trusting God and of trusting obedience. And listen, as he did so, this message comes crashing down on Ashdod. So notice we see finally the concern. Ashdod says, and the inhabitants of this isle, that's Ashdod, on the coastline there of, the, of, that, of that, that, that area of the world. And the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, he says, you know what, you haven't changed your mind, you're going to fail. Your plan B is going to fail, and you're going to fail. They, he says, and the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, behold, such is our expectation. He's saying, you know what? Your plan B is going to fail. Your expectation is going to fall. Oh, you might see some short-term things that will falsely lead you to think you got your way. And then he said this, behold, such is our expectation. Whither? We flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. That is the picture of the frantic Christian. Fleeing for help to the king of Assyria. Fleeing for help. The, the psalmist said, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. He said, the Lord answer me. He says, the Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Listen, the name Eliezer means God is my helper. Ashdod was worried. Ashdod was crying. Because God had just revealed to them a very sobering message through the, through the testimony of the prophet Isaiah walking in his, linen, in, his outer, in his inner garment and walking barefoot. He said, you know what? Your expectation is going to fall. You keep trusting your money. And you keep trusting your intelligence. And you keep trusting your worldly wisdom. And you keep going back to the world for your answers. And you keep going to the world for the things. And notice what their end, the end statement that said here. And how shall we escape? When you're in trouble, you want to escape. When COVID-19 started exploding through the city of New York, the people who had money, they escaped before the city got shut down and went down to Florida. Then they brought it down to Florida. Our counties want to escape from shelter in place. Some people want to escape from the high cost of living. Some people want to escape from a failed life. Some people want to escape out of an uncomfortable position. And they ask the question, how should we escape? The Apostle Paul wrote something very similar to that in Hebrews 2.3. He said, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? I've got news for you this morning. There's no escape. There's no escape from the fires of hell if you're trusting in good works. And there's no escape from the fires of hell if you're trusting in religion or trusting in a church. And there's no escape from the fires of hell if you're trusting in a person a pope or pastor, whoever it may be, some other cleric. There's no hope there. There's no escape. There is no escape. 
But there is escape through God's way. And there is escape through God's plan. And may I tell you this morning, there is escape through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as Paul wrote Hebrews 2.3, he said, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? A few verses later, he says, but we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, for the purpose of suffering and death, crowned with glory, that he should taste death for every man. I mean, I tell you this morning as we close, there is hope, there is an escape, and that escape is through God's Son, Jesus Christ today. You can be saved today if you put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you from your sins. Face reality. Your plan B is going to fail. Your king of Assyria is going, is going, to, is going to conquer you. Now I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you, your, 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 your trust in Egypt, your trust in Ethiopia is going to fail you. Don't stand before God with your sins unforgiven. Don't stand before God knowing one day that you had the opportunity to get saved and you turned it down. There is escape. That escape is through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, you trust Christ today as your Savior? He forgives you of all your sins. He makes you a son of God. He gives you the gift of eternal life. And that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. There is escape. And Christian friend, just reverse, just changing for a minute. If you feel like you're in a situation you can't escape where you're at, the problem is you're trying to run. Stop running from God and run to God. Christian, stop trying to escape. Drugs is not the escape route. Marijuana is not the escape route. Whatever it may be, alcohol is not the escape route. An illicit lifestyle, a rebellious lifestyle is not the way. Hey, you look at here, the prophet Isaiah. Listen, the happiest person in Isaiah chapter 20 was Isaiah. Because he did what God told him to do. When we trust in the Lord, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. This morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity to put your faith in God. Are you, are, do you have a plan B that you're trusting in? Is there an Ethiopia and an Egypt that's been your expectation you need to let go of? Are you so worried, you're so worried and frantic that if you don't get into that school, if you don't get that job, if you don't get that rage, you don't get the promotion, you don't get that client, whatever it may be, that your world's going to fall apart? When that person or that thing becomes your world and Jesus is not your world, all those other things, your plan B is going to fail. This morning, there is an escape. We see Jesus. Who for the purpose of suffering death, crowned with glory, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Jesus died for your sins. He offers you the gift of eternal life. All you simply need to do with all your heart to repent of your sins and call on the Lord to save you. Let's bow our heads, every head bowed and every eye closed.